The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Together, uh, over the last few weeks, as we've been looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, um, we've been studying together what the results of salvation in our life should be. What, what salvation results? How being saved, being chosen, being called, being uh, justified, being born again, all of these things that we've looked at in the first part of First Peter, how these things affect how we live. How we are to apply on the outside what God has done on the inside. So that's, that's where we've been over the last few weeks. Just by way of reminder, there's, uh, there's been three main uh, emphasis that, that Peter has given us. The first was that we are to live with a hope. Live with a hope. That's verse 13 in chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as uh, saved people, that we are now to live as people with a hope. That was the first application. The second that, that Peter gave us was that we are to live with holiness. That starts in verse 14 in chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a call to a holiness of life. That as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the application of our salvation is a life of holiness. The third thing we looked at is that we are to live with an appropriate fear of God. This is starting in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blot or, uh, or without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. These are the, the first three applications that Peter gives us for our salvation. Today, we will see this fourth application in chapter 1. And that is that we are to live with sincere love. That we're to live with sincere love. Because we are saved, because we've been chosen, because we've been born again, we are to live with hope, we are to live with holiness, we are to live with appropriate fear, and we are to live with sincere love. As we look at these verses this morning... Um, we're going to ask some questions and we're going to get some answers as, as Peter sort of lays out a, a progression of thought through these, these verses. We're going we're to ask some questions and, and 
Here's what they are. What are we to do? Right? This is a passage of Scripture, a section of the Scripture that's all about application. It's all about how we're to live. So we're going to ask, how is Peter telling us that we should live? We're going to see the answer there. We're, we're to live with a sincere love. This is what Peter says. This is the thrust of the text, that we're to live with sincere love. But from that, we're going to ask a question. And that question is going to be how. How can we live with sincere love? And Peter answers that question by being purified. So we're going to ask the question then. How are we purified? Peter gives us the answer by being born again. We're going to ask the question. How are we to be born again? Peter gives us the answer through the truth. So that's the progression we're going to take. We're going to look at each of these uh, questions and answers together in this text. So first thing we're going to ask, and we're going to see the thrust of the text this morning is, what are we to do? And the answer is, we are to love sincerely. Peter says it this way, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is the main application point of this text. Because we are now changed, because we have now been saved, we are to live a life marked by A love for one another that comes from a pure heart. A sincere brotherly love. A sincere brotherly love. Now, as I I read this and... And I'm thinking, I mean, there's, these, are, these are main points that, that Peter's saying are points of application of our salvation. I asked myself, and I, and I wondered, why is this important? Why is it important for Peter to, to call us to and to remind us to live in such a way that our lives are marked with a sincere love for one another? A brotherly love, a deep, caring devotion and love that comes from pure motives and a sincere heart for one another. Why is it important for us to live this kind of of life? I think there's probably many reasons we can see this from the scriptures. I want to offer three this morning as to why this is is important. The first one is, is because God has commanded us to. God has commanded us to live this way. Consistently, throughout the scriptures, you see the command of God to live a life marked by a sincere love for one another. Jesus said it this way in John 13, verse 34, that 
there is a new commandment that he gives us. And that is that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. It is the clear teachings of Jesus Christ that we are to love one another. As Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He gives the answer. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and, and strength. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He says in the, the second one is, is like this one. It's to, to love one another. It's the clear command of God that our lives should be lived in an overflow of love for one another. This is so evident and so elementary and so clear that God has commanded us to live this way, that the Apostle Paul says that he doesn't even really have to tell the church at Thessalonica this. This is what Peter, or this is what uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 now, 4 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You don't need me to write to you to tell you to love one another. God himself has told you that you are to love one another. What Peter's saying, is, or what Paul is saying is that, that Jesus himself in his earthly ministry, while here with us, made it abundantly clear that we are to live lives of sincere brotherly love for one another. Why is it important to live this way? It's important to live this way because God has told us to live this way. God has commanded us to live this way. Therefore, we should live this way. A second reason why I believe this is important is because a life of sincere love for others is an evidence of our salvation. Here's what I mean by that. That if you don't love, then the reality is you're not saved. Amen. If you don't live a life marked by sincere brotherly love, then the scriptures tell us you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. A love for one another is an evidence of our salvation. This is 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. What is the light? The light is the gospel. It's the truth. Whoever says he is in the light yet hates his brother... He's in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The fact that we live lives marked by sincere brotherly love is an evidence that we are no longer in spiritual blindness. It's the evidence that we have been changed by the gospel, that we are living in the light of the gospel. This is one of the evidences that you look for to see. Is this person, am I really and truly in the light of the gospel? Am I really and truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? The scriptures say, if you hate your brother, you're in the darkness. 
Now, that's a strong word. And you could say, well, you know, hate your brother and loving your brother. Those are, you know, maybe there's a, an easy middle ground. I don't, I don't believe that there is. There is either love or there's, there's hate. And if our lives are marked by sincere brotherly love, a, a love that is selfless, that looks out for the interests of others greater than our own, that's willing to give what we have for the sake of, of others, to serve one another, to care for one another, to encourage one another. These, this kind of life is an evidence of our salvation. And the reason why this is an evidence of our salvation is because that kind of life is not natural. I don't want to get there yet. We'll get there in a minute. But that kind of life is not, not natural. The third reason why I think it's important to live this way is because this kind of life is one of our strongest testimonies to a watching world. A life marked out by a sincere brotherly love is one of our strongest testimonies to a watching world. It's, it's not the force of our public preaching. It's, it's not the, oh, I don't know, the energy and appeal of our worship services. It's not the conditions of our buildings. It's not how much we know. One of our greatest testimonies is how we love one another. This is the way Jesus says it in his high priestly prayer in John 17, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says that our unity as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our unity is one of the strongest testimonies to a watching world. And the only way real unity happens is if love exists. Without a selfless, giving love, a sincere brotherly love, there is no unity. But where there is love, there is unity. And where these things exist, a world looks at us and says, this isn't natural. This is different. This is something that I could be a part of. It's one of the strongest testimonies. Jesus says is, that is this kind of life that makes it evident so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Jesus goes on to say that the glory you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So you see what Jesus is saying. May they be together like we are together, God. That's, that's what Jesus says, right? And how is, is God the Father and Jesus together? They're together in love. As you have loved me and I have loved you, so may they love one another so that their unity can be a testimony to the world that you have sent me. He goes on to say in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, 
even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Our love for one another is one of the strongest testimonies to a watching world. Our events are important. So all the things that happened at the University of Montevallo this week to connect college students together into the, the, the BCM and from there, Lord willing, to connect them to a local church, all of those events are important. But the most important thing is that what is evident in the hearts and the lives of believers on that campus is that there is a sincere brotherly love that speaks as a testimony to the gospel. That's what's most important. And the reason why our love for one another is such a strong testimony is because it is unnatural. It is unnatural. This is the point that Peter's making here. This verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a, and then you see this word here, sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see what Peter's doing here is he is drawing a distinction that there are a couple of kinds of love in this world. That there is a sincere love and there's an insincere love. There's a love that comes from an unpure heart and there's a love that comes from a pure heart. And what we've been called to is to love with a sincere brotherly love. This word sincere means not hypocritical. It means to uh, love not for one's own good, but sincerely for the good of another. That's what Peter means here. This is Romans 12, 9, where Paul says, let love be genuine. There is a kind of love that is disingenuous. But the love in the kingdom of God that we're called to is a genuine kind of love. A love that abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. See, this kind of love is not natural because in our natural sinful state, we are selfish, not selfless. In order to love with a sincere brotherly love, it has to come out of a selflessness, a willing to give of oneself for the betterment of another person. In our natural sinful state, we are selfish. We may, on the outside, have actions that look like selflessness. But on the inside, because our hearts are controlled by sin... Our motivations are selfish. You see, in our natural state, our love would either be hypocritical or non-existent. Because this kind of love only comes from a purified heart. This is what Peter says. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
So hopefully you see this, this progression here. What are we called to do? We're called to love one another with a sincere love, a love that is not natural. Well, if it's not natural, then how do we live this way? How do we love this way? We love this way out of a pure heart. A pure heart. It's by having a pure heart. See, here's the truth, that it is a purified soul that produces a pure heart that enables a pure love. That's this text, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That what needs to happen, what has to happen if we're to live this way is that purification has to take place. And here's the the reality that every single person, every person in this room, every person in this world, every person who's ever lived have all had the common need to be purified. I would say that this is our greatest need. Our greatest need is purification. Because as we are, we are defiled. As we are, our sin stains. And we need to be clean. We need to be purified. This is every person's greatest need. Now, this is seen in two types of purification. So as these brothers and sisters would have, would have, would have read these words, having purified your soul, uh, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, they would have thought of purification certainly in, in two ways. The first is a ceremonial purification. So for a Jew, they would understand purification in a ceremonial sense. Let me give you, there are loads of examples of this in the Old Testament. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to give you one. It's pretty clear. Numbers chapter 8, starting in verse 6. God says, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Levites are the priests come before God. In order to come before God, you must be pure. And so God says you take them and you cleanse them. You purify them. And here's how you do it. You sprinkle the water of purification upon them and let them go with a razor over all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. You see, this is a a ceremonial purification that has to take place to come before God because in order to come before God, there must be purification. God is holy. God is righteous. We are not. And so for the priests to come before God, they had to ceremonially purify themselves. And they had to do it every single 
time they came into the Holy of Holies before God, they had to purify themselves. Before they could come to Him and offer sacrifice, they had to purify themselves over and over and over again. This is ceremonial purification. The reason why they had to do it over and over again is because ceremonial purification is only temporary. Because you purify yourself symbolically before the Lord. You you purify yourself. You set yourself apart. You consecrate yourself to come before the Lord. And then what happens? You leave and what do you do? You go sin. And so to come before the Lord again, you have to Go through this process of purification over and over and over again. It's temporary. You see, the the reality, what the Old Testament shows us in, in this system of purifications and sacrifices is that there is a need for more than just a ceremonial purification. That there is a need for an inward moral purification. There is a ceremonial purification that is outward and that is temporary. But there is also now, by the grace of God, an inward moral purification. This is the kind of purification that God promised in the days of old that he would bring. So listen to Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you've profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. So God says, I'm about to do something. And when I do it, the whole world is going to know that I'm the Lord God. And it ain't going to be because of you, because you're a bunch of sinners. It's going to be for my sake. It's going to be for my name. So that the world will know that I am the Lord God. What's he going to do? Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. What does God say that they're to do to the Levites? They're to sprinkle the water of purification on them. Now God promises that there's a day that's coming when you won't put the water on each other. I will put it on you. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from All your idols I will cleanse you. But not only am I going to cleanse you. See, that still feels outward, right? Not only am I going to do that, but I am going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to do a work 
inside of you. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you because I'm going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh and I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says there's a day coming when I'm going to change you from the inside out because this external ceremonial purification has never been enough. It's only existed so that you can understand my holiness and your need for purification. But there will be a day when I will take you for my, myself and I will sprinkle you with clean water and I will put a new heart in front of you and I will give you a new spirit and it will be my spirit I put in you. This is what the writer of Hebrews has in mind. This is what the writer of Hebrews says has taken place. So this which was prophesied in Ezekiel that God would do one day, the writer of Hebrews says that day has come. That day is here. Hebrews 10, verse, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, with sincere confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What God promised he would do in Ezekiel, God has done in Jesus Christ. This has come. This purification that every one of us needs has been given to us through Jesus Christ. He's our great high priest. We're no longer dependent on a Levite. We have a great high priest. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he has cleansed us. And he's given us a new heart. And he has made every single one of us a priest. So that you now can, in full assurance and full confidence, come before God. No longer in need for ceremonial purification because you have, by the grace of God, an inward moral purification. A new heart and a new spirit. So, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And then I love this. This is, all, this is what God's done for us, right? On the in, in, inward, this is what God's done for us. Then look what this means, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. God's brought about this inward change, this inward purification, so that we can now consider how we are to love one another. This is 1 Peter. You see, this is our greatest need. What enables us to come before God and to love one another has taken place. We have been purified. Now, makes me ask the question, how? If, if 
Purification is your greatest need because without it, you cannot come before God. Without it, you cannot come before him. So your greatest need is purification. How do you get it? Well, first, let me tell you how you don't get it. That's not very good English, but you get the point. Because I don't want you to be confused by this verse. Peter says this, having purified your souls, this is this purification, by your obedience to the truth. Now, this sounds like on the surface that we purify our souls, we purify ourselves by our obedience or by our works, right? Can you see how how somebody could read that and get, get there? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. But that is not the meaning here. That is not the meaning anywhere in the scriptures. You do not purify yourselves. God purifies you. It does not happen by your works. It happens by obedience to the truth. This is the language. Peter says, we have had our souls purified by our obedience to the truth. This means that our souls are purified when we give ourselves over to the truth. That's what this means. So that makes me ask a question. What is this truth? What is the truth that we give ourselves over to? What is the truth that these people have given themselves over to. Because that's, that's the way this is written, right? Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth. So this is something you've already done. This is something you're currently doing. So what is this truth that they have given themselves over to? Well, Peter's already told them what it is. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, it was revealed to them. This is Old Testament uh, and uh, prophets. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but, but you in the things that they've now that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look this thing that they, this truth that we um, are purified in our obedience to is the gospel it's the good news we are purified as we Give ourselves over in obedience to the gospel. Here's what this means. Literally, this is your souls have been purified because you became obedient to the gospel. That you believed the gospel. You heard it first. You believed it. You trusted it. You've given yourself over to it. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that's purified your souls. It's not you that did it, but it's your obedience to the gospel. It's your faith in the gospel. The reason why this can sound like works is because there is no distinction in the scriptures between the two. Between faith and works, they go together. Your works don't earn your faith. Your faith produces your works, right? This is is James. 
It's obedience and faith that brings purification. And it's faith to the gospel. Here's what this means. This does not mean that it is just a sincere belief. Doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you sincerely mean it, you're good. No, it's obedience to the truth. It's obedience to the gospel. That's what it is. I mentioned James. This is James 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has said he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. What, what James is saying is, is that our faith is tied directly to our works. You can't have real saving faith without works. You cannot have real saving faith without an obedience to the truth. Saving faith is obedience to the gospel. It does, it's not that your obedience earns it. It's that God gives it. And you are obedient. They go together. One doesn't earn the other. One produces the other. Here's what I find really interesting about James here is that he gives an example of these kinds of works that are evidence of our faith. And what's the example that he gives? He could have given all sorts of examples, but what's the example that he gives? It's, it's an example of brotherly love, right? Because if someone comes to you and they're in need, they, they don't have clothing, they're lacking daily food, and you don't give it to them, then your faith is dead. That's what James says. What is that? Someone who is in need and you meet their needs. What is that? That's love. That's love. These works don't earn your salvation or your faith. They prove it because they go together. It is obedience to the truth in faith that purifies your greatest need or purifies your soul, which is your greatest need. That's how it happens. How do you get what you need most? You get it through obedience, through faith in the gospel. That makes me ask a question. How does that happen? Well, Peter tells us. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. You see, here's what this means. This means that we have obedience to the truth by being born again. You in your natural state cannot have obedience to the truth. You stiff arm God. You reject the truth. Your, your sin has so controlled you that you are totally and completely depraved. 
The scriptures say that no one does good. No, not one. We are all empty graves. Nothing good in us. Nothing that desires God in us. The scriptures say that no one seeks God. So how can you go from that state to obedience to the truth? Like if, if in your natural state you're not able to get to obedience to the truth, but it's obedience to the truth that makes it where you can be purified, and it's your purification that makes you where you can love one another with sincere love, then how are you to get to obedience to the truth? That happens as you are made new, as you are born again. It happens as God does what he promises in Ezekiel and he takes out a heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. Now who's the one doing the work? See, God doesn't say at some point, eventually, maybe in the sixth grade, you're going to walk an aisle and you're going to meet a preacher at the front of a church and you're going to reach in and you're going to take out your own heart of stone and you're going to reach up and you're going to grab a heart of flesh. No. What it says is, God says, I will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I will, by my grace, through my power, for my glory, I will cause you to be born again. He says it. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put in within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. To be able to love with a pure, to be able to love, we must be purified. We must be made clean. To be made clean, we must be obedient to the truth. That's faith. To have faith, we must be made new. You see, this is not behavior modification. Christianity is not just about change the way you live so that God is pleased with you. Christianity is there's a whole new life. There's a whole new person. There's a whole new inward spirit. Salvation is a radical change. A total transformation. It is a new birth. It is a new beginning. This is what God requires. And by his grace, this is what he offers all right, so I hope you're checking with me here. You've got to love with sincere brotherly love. The only way you can love with sincere brotherly love is to have a purified heart. And the only way to have a purified heart is by obedience to the truth. And the only way to have obedience to the truth is by being born again. Now, shouldn't that make you ask a question? How am I born again? Well, Peter tells us, you're born again by the truth. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, Peter begins to offer a contrast of what is is temporary versus what is eternal, what is corruptible versus what is incorruptible, what is perishable versus what is imperishable. And he says that we have been born again. And this time, it's not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed. So you see, keeping with this idea of, of, of being born again, Peter uses the idea of seed. Now, I know this is old language, and we don't use it anymore. And I don't even know if it's the right way to say it. But what this is, is some begetting. Right? I mean, you've read the scriptures, you've read it, and, and such and such begot such and such. I mean, there's, there's begetting going on in the scriptures. This is, this is seed. This is being born. And what, what Peter's saying here, and what is the reality, is that what is perishable begets perishable. Right? And what is imperishable begets what's imperishable. What this means is that there is a part of the nature of the thing that is passed on, right? That when you are born of something, when you are begot of something, that you take on the nature of what you're born from. So in our natural state, we are born from what? We're born from sin. We're born from a sinful seed. And because of that, we we take on the nature of that which we're born from. It's sin. That's why David says, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was sinful in my mother's womb. From from the, the moment that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, what passed through this, this seed was sin. We took on the nature of that which came before us, that which we came out of. We took on the nature. But when we're born again, just like our natural birth, we take on the nature of what we're born from. In our supernatural, spiritual birth, we take on the the nature of what we're, we're born out of. So when we're born again, from God, spiritually, supernaturally, we take on the, that nature. And Peter says it this way. We go from being perishable, because sin is perishable, sin leads to death, to being imperishable. Because what we're born out of is imperishable. When God brings about a new spiritual birth, we take on the nature that is imperishable because our faith comes from the imperishable Word of God. And because our faith, our new birth, comes from the imperishable Word of God, our faith then is imperishable. We take on the nature 
of the Word of God. Our faith takes on the nature of which it comes out of. This, for me, is clear perseverance of the saints. There's not this, you're saved, you lose it, you're saved again, you lose it. That was one of the most frustrating things in student ministry. You get saved every summer camp. Stop it, right? Just be saved one time and let's be done with it. Because when you're born again from the, the imperishable Word of God, you take on the nature, your faith takes on the nature of the imperishable Word of God. So how are we born again? We're born through His Word. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And so Peter naturally uses an Old Testament paraphrase of Isaiah 40, 6 through 8. Peter says it this way in verse 21 or 24. For all fresh, all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is a paraphrase of Isaiah 40, verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. You know, there's a whole lot of that people put a whole lot into this that they say, well, Peter, he didn't even get the quote right, so this isn't, you know, verbally, plenarily inspired word of God. Here's my opinion of that. The Spirit of God knows the word of God because the word of God comes from the, the Spirit of God. And quite frankly, the Spirit of God can paraphrase it however he wants to. It ain't Peter. It's the Spirit of God. You see, God's word stands forever. And it's God's word that brings about a new birth. It's a new birth that brings about obedience to the truth. It's obedience to the truth that brings purification. And it's purification that enables sincere brotherly love. So what is this word? What is this word that stands forever? What is this eternal, imperishable word that brings about a new birth? Peter tells us, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that you and your sin are in desperate need for a Savior, that you cannot save yourself. You cannot come to God. He is holy. He is righteous. And you are not. And you cannot come before Him. All you deserve is His wrath. But He has, by His grace, come in flesh, lived a perfect life, given Himself up as for death on a cross. And in that death, took on the full wrath of God. Buried, risen again to new life and offers forgiveness of sin to all who put their faith in him. That's the good news preached to you. That is the eternal word of God. That is what brings about a new birth. 
It is the word of God. Church, this is why we do what we do. Songs, as good as they are, as emotional as they can be, are not eternal. They do not bring about a new birth. It is the word of God that brings about a new birth. That's why we do what we do. That's why we preach the way we preach. That's why the vast majority of our gathering together is centered around what? The word of God, especially today. I told Jacob last night, this is going to be a long one. It's a lot to cover. Because, church, this is what we need. This is what you need. You need the word of God. You need the gospel. Because that's what brings about a new birth. And then the dominoes start falling. Right? Because a new birth brings about obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth brings about a purification, and a purification enables a brotherly love, and a brotherly love proves that we've been born again, and a brotherly love proclaims that God is who God says that he is. This is what we need. This is what you need. You need to be born again. By God's grace, Some of us, most of us, Lord willing, all of us have been. But if you have not, this is what you need. And it comes from obedience to the word of God. And when that new birth comes, guess what happens? You go from perishable to imperishable. From guilty and stained to clean from unable to approach God to being one of his children that's what happens that's our greatest need now remember all of that the thrust of it from the text is love one another with sincere brotherly love that's what we're called to do but we're only able to do it if all these other things have taken place. So here it is. If these things have taken place, then love one another with sincere brotherly love. If these things haven't taken place, then you need to be obedient to the word and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.